I uh, do not consider myself a, a person with a disability, uh, but I am working my way there. <laughs> and uh, if I ever want to forget that fact, every four months my neurologist has me fill out this little form, um, which says, uh, since last office visit have you had, circle yes or no, tremor, yeah, difficulty with fine motor tasks, well, left hand typing this sermon was a little clumsy, yep, and then all sorts of other goodies, difficulty getting out of a car, difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, confusion or difficulty thinking, seeing or hearing things that are not there, depression and anxiety, difficulty swallowing and drooling. I'll spare you the rest. Uh, prior to my diagnosis with Parkinson's, I'd really done little or no real thinking about what God has to say was to someone with disabilities and the people who love them. Uh, here in the U.S., there are 42 million people who live with a disability. But I had never preached a sermon devoted to the topic, and not until two weeks ago with Ellen's wonderful sermon had I even heard one. So uh, it's overdue. As theologian Brian Brock puts it, disability lives in the outer reaches of most Christians' consciousness. So what does Christianity have to say to people with disabilities? Now before, in my life, that question would have been mildly interesting, but for me now, it is essential. It is existential. It's personal. I gotta know. And, you know, what does, maybe to put a finer point on it, what does a Christianity offer to somebody who will deal with tremor or confusion or drooling? Now, when I, I turn to my Bible, I am very comforted by the way Jesus interacts with people. He meets people with contagious skin diseases, and the first thing he does is touch them. You know, he takes people very seriously and kindly. He asks, do you want to get well? I mean, he's very respectful of them and their situation, and it's beautiful. So I know Jesus is compassionate. Also, I know that Jesus is powerful. Jesus never meets a condition and says, I'd really love to help you, I can't. Uh, you know, that never happens. He is always full of the power to heal. But that is also confusing to me. Because I know that Jesus has the power to heal a condition like mine or any other. And yet, I also know that just this spring, we laid to rest two dear saints here from Savior, Marianne Fuja and Steve Mead, who died from Parkinson's-related causes. So if Jesus does not heal me this side of heaven, what does he offer me now? Now, I don't really love those words, offer me, but I didn't know quite how to phrase it. I mean, what, what I'm trying to say is, I know Jesus is God. I also know he doesn't owe me anything. And yet, my heart cries out, God, where are you in this? Like, what do you have for me in this? So tonight, I invite you to come with me on a journey into a holy truth. It is one that I have not seen as clearly before as I'm starting to now. And it has been speaking to me. It's been strengthening me. And so I hope that whether you yourself are facing disabilities or you love someone who is, you'll be given a fresh perspective and some hope. And really, 
mostly that you would be, feel yourself drawn toward God. Now, to do this, I do need you to use your imaginative powers, and I need you to imagine that you and I meet Jesus on five different days in his life. Okay? So, are you ready? All right. Day number one, uh, November 20, so the same day in the year as today, but 10 B.C., 10 B.C. Now, most scholars would put the birth of Jesus somewhere between 6 B.C. and 4 B.C. So 10 B.C., on our first day, on this day, Jesus has not yet taken on our human flesh. And so as we approach him in heaven, we are blinded by a light and cannot go one step closer. And the only words that come to you and me are from the scriptures. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone is immortal and who lives in an unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. We're not able to see any form. And so we can just fall on our face and declare, Lord Jesus Christ, you are God from God, light from light, true God from true God. God, that's day one. Now, how different this is from day two. Day two, let's make that November 20th also, but fast forward to 8 AD. Now, you and I are looking at a teenager, 13 years old, dark hair, he's getting taller, and he asks good questions. If we were his pediatrician, we would write, growing in wisdom and in stature. (laughs) But we also have some concerns for this young man. We've heard the rumors that people don't know who his real dad is. And he's probably getting rejected by other kids about that. And in addition, and this is hard to admit, but we have to agree with the person who wrote, quote, He was not well-formed or especially handsome. We saw him, but his appearance did not attract us. Like someone from whom people turn their faces, he was despised. We did not value him. That's day two. Now, the next time we see Jesus, he's in his early 30s. So day three is in the spring, April 7th of A.D. 30. We happen to be walking out of the city when you and I see three criminals hanging there by the side of the road. And before we can avert our eyes, we realize to our horror, we know that guy in the middle. The Roman soldiers had extra fun with this prisoner because he's got thorn branches curled into a circle and pressed into his scalp. And he's nailed against the wood paralyzed there we are repulsed sick to our stomach and we turn away that is day three all right day four is 10 days later this is now april 17th of a.d 30 and uh, we're with our friend thomas and he's upset and my friends keep hallucinating he says They keep thinking they see Jesus, who was executed earlier this month, as if he's standing in the room talking with all of them. It's bizarre. 
And I tried to snap them out of it, so I said to them, you know what I'm going to believe you? The day I can see the nail holes in his hands and stick my hand inside the gash in his side. Anyway, I'm going to dinner with those crazies this evening, and I need you to come with me for support. We'll be the only sane people in the room. So that evening, we follow Thomas into a room where a table is set up, and we notice after we go in, he locks the door. And there are maybe a dozen-ish people there, and during dinner, the conversation suddenly cuts off, and as we look up from our plate, we see someone standing there looking exactly like the Jesus we had seen before. But this Jesus is totally fine. He's healthy. He looks like he's doing great. And he turns to Thomas and says, put your, put your finger right here. And then he slips the shoulder of his robe off and says, and put your hand in here. Don't be faithless. Believe. Now, we had seen that wound when it was ugly and swollen, and it's still there. It's in the same place. But it's really different. We could almost call it beautiful. Well, that's day four. That was April 17th. The final time we see Jesus, it's day five. And this is May 18th. A.D. 30. And just as on the first day we saw Jesus, it's in heaven. Only this time, we can see what's happening, and another person there, Daniel, can describe it even better than we can. As I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. Then I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. And we realize the one that looks like a human being, that's because he is a human being. It's, it's the same Jesus we've seen four times before. He came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And we realize it's like there's this mashup. I don't know the word, but it's like Jesus has all the holy light, glory, and power that we saw in him in day one. And yet he's also got, he's also a human being with a human body like we saw in days two, three, and four. On day one, he had no form that we could see. But now on day five, he has a human body, and you can tell it's his. You can tell by the scars. But his wounds, which were repulsive, are now radiant. What caused him pain now brings him praise. What caused him dishonor now brings him the highest honor. And we fall on our face and sing, Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side, rich wounds still visible above, in beauty glorified. Now, although I asked all of you to use your imagination with me, everything 
the foundation of everything I have just told you is factually true and doctrinally sound. Jesus was with God and was God, not from day one, before there was a day one. Day one was created through him and for him. And so he was, just as God is, spirit, invisible, dwelling in unapproachable light. Then he took on our human body and he lived with what you and I live with in a human body, which is limits, physical pain, and social rejection. But I find many Christians who believe all of that think that when he ascended back into heaven, he slipped off that human body like scuba gear and was like, I'm so glad I'm out of that. Not doing that again. And that is not what happened. He keeps his human body, takes it into heaven, into the presence of the Father, and will hold that form forever. This is astonishing. Our Anglican 39 article puts it, 39 articles puts it this way. Christ did truly rise again from death and took again his body. And then just to make sure we understand, they're talking about a real human body. It goes on with flesh, bones, and all things pertaining to the perfection of man's nature with which he ascended into heaven and there sits until he returns to judge all people at the last day. So when you and I gather tonight and we worship Jesus Christ, we worship a God with a scarred body. Savior member uh, Rochelle Sherman uh, has written several articles on the theology of disability, and one of those introduced me to the work of a theologian named Nancy Island. And Nancy was born with a congenital bone defect, which meant she had a lot of surgeries as a kid. And in the so dry words of Wikipedia, experienced considerable pain as well as disability. So in her theology, Nancy Island came to describe Jesus using these startling words, the disabled God. Which I had to wrestle with. And then finally I realized, it's true, Jesus who is the image of the invisible God, carries forever the scars of wounded hands, broken feet, and a gashed abdomen. Can we take into our hearts that God chose for you and for me to have his hands and feet impaled until he was utterly fixed in place, which is the closest experience to being a quadriplegic it would be physically possible to have. We could even say that Jesus was blinded temporarily by the blindfold that the soldiers put over his head. People were disgusted by his body and they turned away, which is one of the worst parts of being disabled. He felt that. It is jaw-dropping that solely out of love for us, our God chose that disability, he keeps that disability, and he glorifies that disability. Wow. Now what does this mean for you and for me? Well, since God chose disability, then if he does not choose to heal me of my disability, it means I'm no longer left waiting for healing and feeling like, I don't know why it's not happening. I must not have enough faith. Maybe God doesn't really love me. 
Instead, my disability simply means I am human. Vulnerable. But I'm never left alone by God because God chooses to take that on. He comes to me in my limits and makes them his own. Theologian uh, John Hull, who's blind, puts it this way. Jesus did not resist himself being immersed in blindness on the cross out of love for us. And he's including here also the idea that the sky went completely dark for three hours. So he, he finishes in the dark for us. It is because, however briefly, that he shares in our condition, meaning the condition of those who, like John Hull, are blind, undergoing mockery and a humiliation that few of us have had to undergo, that we cannot be offended by him. And then he prays this prayer. Dear Master, I do not ask you to heal me, but only that if you call me to follow you in blindness, you will hold my hand. So beautiful. Well, if, if that's what it means for God to choose disability, think what it means that he keeps that disability. Now, to be clear, friends, the promise of God is the restoration of all things. We look forward to new, resurrected, and glorious bodies on a new earth. And so very rightly, many Christians with disabilities cannot wait for the day they will be freed from theirs. Amen. But we should not assume that every person with a disability would want to be completely freed from theirs. And, and, and be given a, quote, normal, unquote, body. For example, someone with autism may rightly feel, I like the way I am. I just want to be in a place where that does not cause frustration for others and rejection for me. So if our God chooses to keep his scars, then this too also becomes an option within the Christian framework and within Christian theology. Uh, Ellen, she commented to me, I think it was in an email, that when God makes all things new, he may give to each person with disabilities the choice. What part of it do you want to hang on to and what part do you want to be freed from? I like that. Well, finally, I love this truth that God glorifies disability. The scars of Jesus are not just visible, but radiant. They inspire worship. The, the, the signs of hate done against him have now become his, the, his badges of honor for all that he went through for us. I, that speaks to me very deeply. Michael J. Fox calls Parkinson's the gift that keeps on taking. <laughs> and now that I have this uh, visible tremor, Sometimes I'll meet a newer person at Savior and I'm like, okay, I know they see this because I see this. I'm aware of this. It takes from me a little bit of my social uh, balance, if that's the right word. Because now I'm also wondering, do they think that the old guy doesn't have what it takes to be the pastor of this church and maybe, <laughs> maybe we should keep looking elsewhere? Now, I know that's mostly irrational and mostly inside my head, but it does come about and I need to know that my disabilities and all their frustration and limitation will become in God glorious. 
that God, who knows what I go through and what I will go through, and he knows what you've gone through, and he knows what you will go through, he will honor that. He will give it meaning. He will beautify it. And what was your greatest point of distress will actually, in God's perspective, be seen finally through his eyes of love and given the dignity that it deserves. Uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, of course, is very well known as an advocate for people with disabilities. And she's been very honest um, about just how hard it's been for her to have been quadriplegic since age 17. She's been very honest about how hard it is to be patient with her caregiver, for example. And she and Ken have been very honest about how hard it's been on their marriage. And uh, recently she said this. She's now 72, by the way. So she said, I wish I could take my big old bulky Everston Jennings wheelchair to heaven. It's like a little Sherman tank. I'd like to park before the throne, look into the eyes of Jesus and say, Lord, I sat in that thing over five decades. And with my glorified fingers, I'd rub the armrests and then I'd say, Jesus, the weaker I was in this thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. Amen.